Acts chapter 15. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told them how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. And verses 22 to 29. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat, of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Come on up, Todd. Thank you, Ken. A little more, maybe? These are very frail. They're not strong. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I want to sure. Oh, there it is. See how much I need help? So, our sermon for this morning. I have the title, The Antiochian Body, but we don't have it on the screen right now, but it looks impressive when you see the word. Is it there now? The Antiochian Body. It is impressive, right? Um, it just, it's, it's a Willie James Jennings we've been using his commentary for this series, and all it means is uh, something happened in Antioch, and it upset some people. Um, so just like you'd say Vancouverite, Antiochian. Um, but really what it means is that with what happened in Antioch, everything for the rest of history changed in terms of Christian faith. But I've got some kind of rough news for you. Um, it's November. November's kind of a downtime anyway. Advent starts next week, which is great. 
but you know November and February they can be. And it's so this is kind of the blase news. Today's sermon is about a meeting. <laughs> um, aren't you glad you came to church? Meetings are maybe the worst part. I'm saying this for myself. I think there are some ministers who like meetings. Um, I think. I don't know. But anyway, for me, meetings are the worst part about being a pastor. Amen. Thank you. Um, so I go, and, and as a chaplain in hospitals, and just as a pastor at churches, um, you're with people who are dying a lot, too. So you're in a hospital, you're around somebody's deathbed, you're gathered with the family. Um, you're, that can be rough, people think. Or you go to an old folks' home and sing like when the roll is called up yonder, which is what you guys want to do in an afternoon of a weekend. And people say, you know, about being around a deathbed or those kinds of places you find yourself as a minister. Oh, that must be really tough to do that. It must be really hard for you. And I always respond in my head, sometimes out loud with, no, actually the things that are tough are meetings. That's what can suck the life out of you. Like two and a half, three hour meetings at night to talk about the church. And then... So now I'm recalling a particular meeting um, and particular people, but you don't know who they are. So we're fine. And it's past the statute of limitations. And it's not bound by confidentiality. Particular meeting, about three hours long. And then that terrible question towards the end. Chair says, chair wasn't me. Chair says, anything else? And people like me are going, please, God, nothing else. And then somebody says those horrible words. Well, I hate to have to say this. In fact, I wanted to have a t-shirt made for particular people, people I love, but who at about the two and a half hour mark and past would often say, I hate to have to say this. But they clearly had to say it. And I was going to get a shirt that they could wear. They, just, they could just do that instead. I hate to have to say this. And that happened on this one particular meeting. I hate to have to say this, but the Christmas Eve service, this meeting took place in April. I hate to have to say this, but the Christmas Eve service sent the wrong sexual messages. And we took another hour and a half. I'll spare you the details. You can read them in my tell-all um, what it meant to be a pastor book coming out sometime. Some of you might make the book. Anyway. <laughs> but a couple of questions arise at the statement, our Christmas Eve service sent the wrong sexual messages. The first is, you were there. What sexual messages did you receive from our Christmas Eve service? And secondly, didn't actually the whole Christmas story in the Bible send the wrong sexual messages? <laughs> what with an unwed mother, unwed mother saying, I'm pregnant by an angel. Or God. To be fair, and some people here would know this, I did and continue to, but thinking back then, did my fair share to contribute to the general crappiness of meetings, saying a lot of things, blah, 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 seeing in people's eyes, Todd, could you stop talking, please? And I myself could be rather oppositional at times. But I often think of Thomas Merton's words, the Trappist monk, who talks about meeting after meeting said, some people seem to like this kind of life. They fill the air, he said, with words and make a great deal of noise and roar at one another and then pat one another on the back with the assurance that they've done great things to spread the kingdom of God. 
So Acts chapter 15, sorry to say, is a meeting. The whole chapter is a meeting that's been called. And it's kind of, I hate to have to say this, is the context. It's a meeting called to address a problem. Something has happened, you know this feeling, you might know it at your work, certainly people who work in churches can know this, or volunteer leaders can know this. Something has happened that some people think is actually a good thing, but there's a little bit of like, oh no, what happens when the people in charge find out? So something has happened, and the people in charge have found out, and the meeting is called, what are we going to do about this thing? You remember what it is, right? It's the vision from Acts chapter 10, when Peter had this vision on the roof, in that place, Simon the Tanner's place. He had a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven and all these animals on the sheets. And they were animals that were forbidden to be eaten, consumed by the followers of Jesus who considered themselves part of this Jewish tradition and faith. So as that sheet came down, Peter reacted with disgust. The sheet kept three times it came down and a voice from heaven said, kill and eat, like take these things. You can break the rules. And Peter knew what the vision was about, and he was disgusted, and he did say, God, I can't do this. But three times it happened, and then Peter gave in. And he knew that it wasn't about food particularly, it was about Gentiles. It was about, these, are, these things represent what non, kind of, the, the people who aren't following the rules properly, it, this represents them. And so you are to open this faith, or I am opening this faith, God says, to all of these other people, the Gentiles they would be part of the community of Jesus Christ. And when the gatekeepers found this out, you can imagine what happened, right? When the people in charge found this out, they called a meeting. So a lot of what's happening is happening in Antioch. And Antioch is actually the first place, many of you would know this, where the term Christian comes up, from follower of Jesus to Christian. And so things are happening in and around Antioch, and in where Peter and Cornelius are meeting, and the, words get, the word gets back to kind of those in charge, and there's a meeting called in Jerusalem. And that's what Acts chapter 15 is. With the meeting in Jerusalem, everything changes. And I contend today, right now, November 2022, we've yet to realize the promise of, of the openness of that meeting. That meeting didn't really like fully open things, but they at least set things in that direction. And without that meeting, you guys wouldn't be sitting here today, and I wouldn't be standing here. The meeting is called to determine what to do about Peter and the Gentiles and now Saul, or Paul, a Saul who's become Paul and Barnabas, and they seem to be opening the faith to other people. The, so words for that would be like alignment control. You've been in those kinds of meetings in various places before, and churches major in them, right? Um, what kind of lines are we going to establish? Who gets to be included? Those present are Peter and Saul and Barnabas. And the keepers of the faith, the ones who were, see those lines as important, some of them are self-appointed keepers of the faith. And so I can ask a question now, have you ever been called to one of those meetings? Where are decisions going to be made? Is this acceptable or not? Is this person acceptable or not? Have you ever been the subject of one of those meetings? I mean, for some of us, we have to imagine being the subject of one of those meetings. But there's people in this room who've been the subject of one of those meetings. What are we going to do about so-and-so? Should we let them in? Sometimes, the people who are being talked about are actually allowed to be at the meeting. You know what I mean? But they almost never get to speak. 
And that's what happened in Acts chapter 15. Peter and Paul, Barnabas and others are there. The keepers of the faith are there. And there are some Gentile believers there, but they never speak. They're spoken about, not with. If we have things in our Christian faith where we're speaking about, but not with, we've to some degree failed. And somebody says, one of the Pharisees says, it is necessary that, it kind of opens the meeting, it is necessary that they follow these regulations to be included among us. You've heard of the Desert Fathers, right? I'll give you one little Desert Fathers story. The Desert Fathers are these people uh, th- uh, hundreds of years ago who go out into the desert kind of to, to um, escape the kind of corruption of the city in a sense, but... And they become known as spiritual masters. They're like really wise people. They're there to battle the passions, as they say, right? Uh, but they're, they're always sought after for their advice. And they actually are called to councils at times to make decisions on part of society or church or whatever. And there's lots of stories like this. One time a desert father was called. The council was going to decide, what are we going to do about this person? Some kind of impropriety had been committed and this council was called, what are we going to do about this person? And this desert father was invited to be part of that council. And he came. And so they talked. The person themselves never spoke. They talked and they decided, this person must be cast out. And when the decision was made to cast that person out, the desert father, as the story is told, they're all quirky like this, stood up and walked out as well. And somebody on the council said, what are you doing? You're not, you're not, what, why are you leaving? The meeting's not over. And the Jesuit father turned back and said, Oh, I thought this was the part of the meeting when sinners were supposed to leave. He cast himself in identity with the one who was being told that they didn't fit in. The pull to protect our faith, as if it can be lived by kind of keeping it pure, is something that many of us have seen. But God, as they're learning in Acts chapter 15, and I think we need to learn it again, And I don't don't think we've discovered this yet. God is always ahead of us. Always ahead of us. God is not back there protecting some way of life and the purity of the faith. So in Acts chapter 15, you can read it yourself. It's, It's a meeting. I mean, there's some exciting things in it, but not really. Peter gives a speech. He says the Holy Spirit is with the Gentiles as well. God is with them too. Paul and Barnabas say that they've been traveling around doing ministry. And all kinds of incredible things are happening with these people who are supposedly outsiders. There's been this tendency in church circles to think that for people to encounter God, they need to kind of come into our sphere. Paul and Barnabas and Peter are saying, no, we're seeing God work in their sphere before we get there. In the days ahead, if the presence and work of Jesus is true, I believe the presence and work of Jesus is true, the most true, We will see how that is true, not simply in our places of worship, in our communities of faith, but in the whole of our lives and in the expanse of this world. So, moving towards uh, consideration of Jesus on this, maybe a little bit more uncomfortable. I want to give this a physicality, our bodies, not just like our ideas, and can people be included? But there's a physicality to this, the, the exclusion of bodies. People's bodies are actually excluded. You don't quite fit because of this thing 
or this way of seeing things, or your sexuality, or your race, or whatever it is. Peter's disgust is mirrored in how historically we have seen, and people who've come before us have seen other people, kind of with disdain and disgust because they are so different than us. When I was thinking about this and working on this, I thought about John Lewis. We've got a slide here. Many of you would know who John Lewis is. So this book, you should read this book if you can. John Meacham writes a book called His Truth is Marching On. And it's about John Lewis and the civil rights movement in the 60s in the United States. Focuses on John Lewis, John Lewis's life, it's his story. Um, written just before John Lewis died in 2020, or came out just before he died. And the middle picture is John Lewis as a young civil rights worker on that day in March 1965 when they walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and when then they were just beaten, beaten up. And he was right, he's really young there and he's right at the front of the line. And the reason I'm bringing this example up is that he, he understood from his Christian faith, it was entirely his Christian faith that compelled him to something better and bigger. The people who stood with the clubs and the people behind them claimed Christian faith to keep things pure and the way things were. Like those signs you've seen, whites only, over a water fountain or something. The people arguing for that status quo were Christian people for the most part. But John Lewis's faith was, no, this needs to reach beyond this limit. And he came to actually stretch his body across those lines. So he's walking here in this photo, and it was just a couple of minutes after that, that this is what he says. They came with all types of force, beating us with nightsticks and trampling us with horses. I was the first person to be hit. My legs went from under me, and I was knocked down. Charles Malden, who was only 17 years old at the time, probably somewhere in that photo or just out of frame, said, thinking about that day, I'll never forget the sound of the billy club hitting John's head. John Lewis, now on the asphalt, felt everything dimming, he says. He vomited, and he was struck a second time, and his skull fractured, and his vision blurred, and he said to himself, people are going to die here, I'm going to die here. Yet, Meacham says in writing this, there was no sense of panic, no gasping, no thrashing, no fear. Lewis was at peace. Lewis says, at the moment when I was hit on the bridge, it began to fall, I really thought it was my last protest, my last march. I thought I saw death and I thought, it's okay, it's all right, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. In the bag on his back, he's carrying, uh, we found out later they had a Bible in there and a book by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is thought by many to be the father of the civil rights movement in the 60s in the United States. And in a book, I don't know if it was the same one that was in there, probably not, but in a book by Howard, that Howard Thurman wrote on Negro spirituals, those old songs, that called, that's what they were called, he has this quote. He says, by some, by some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption that the of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. I'll read it again. By some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned in his midst. Here's why I'm telling you this. Many of you are tired 
of a Christian faith that is defined by boundaries against others. You want a faith that compels you towards the other. Those with the clubs representing purity and segregation and protection from the world. Willie James Jennings in his commentary speaks of pastors, then and even now, church leaders, who've come to understand that their particular profession calls them to protect the faith. Jennings calls these people the high priests of segregationist practice. And he says they don't love the world, they love what they rule over. They seem to have a need to be accepted and praised, so they take up the gatekeeper work, and their sermons become warnings about the state of the world, and why our group is pure, and if only everybody else was like us, then we'd be okay. It's a closing off to the world. This meeting in Acts chapter 15, there is, a dis, a, a, there is an astounding decision with reservations. If you read about the meeting, those who like doing those kinds of things, their decision is actually, you ready for this? They're in. People are in. Those people who we previously excluded, they're part of us and we are part of them. But it's not all fantastic because they do what these meetings typically do. And some of it is appealing to people who are, we'll say for proper motivation, say, well, we can't get rid of all the lines. So they, they basically, well, they don't, they write this letter that says, you guys are in, they bring it to Antioch and other places, you're in, but there's just a few little, little things that you've got to keep. Just these things. Many of you have seen things like that. It's hard and scary to be open to the world, to open our bodies to the world. For, for me right now, it would be like a spiritual practice, a prayer practice to see if you could take out. What would it mean for you to open up your faith and your body to the world? Your faith is not something that calls you to be enclosed and protected from. Properly understood, Christian faith calls us to be open up. Our self-understanding is not first in Christian faith about autonomy. I know that there's some positives about that in our world. But in Christian faith, self-understanding is not first about autonomy. As if we are some solitary gated community or a protected church group or community or tribe. Self-knowledge in Christian faith is about opening up, being broken open. Jennings points out, and I know you can already kind of sense this, Jennings points out this breaking open is not a violent action. We so, we're so conditioned to think that that's kind of violent, and some of you have been abused in ways that that's the first thing that can come to mind. Jennings says this opening up in true Christian faith is not a violent action, it is an action of intimacy. It's the only way we can understand ourselves is with the other. We're not Christian without those other people. We're not Christian if we're trying to protect our faith. This is the way forward in faith. And I think that we have not tried it. This meeting in Acts chapter 15 is an extraordinary meeting. 
That word extraordinary is good unless the next word is meeting. <laughs> Some of you have been to extraordinary Strata Council meetings. Special levy meetings, as they call them. But this meeting turned out to be actually quite extraordinary. We wouldn't be here without it. But the full promise of it has yet to be realized. So I ask myself the question. I pray it, actually. I ask Jesus. Dear Lord, what does it mean? Would you show me a faith that is about moving towards the other rather than seemingly protecting myself or you from the other? Our understanding of faith can so often be about how we are unlike other people. We long for a faith that is discovered in how we are like other people that are different than us. And I think that there are good days ahead for this. Accordant our faith off so often from the world. The last note on this is to consider Jesus Christ himself. If God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had remained a gated community, I mean, if anybody deserves protection from the rest of us, it's God. But God did not remain apart. Today is the reign of Christ Sunday in many kind of more mainline churches, Anglican churches and others. Jesus the King is the idea. So often, Jesus the King is presented as a triumphalist ruler over idea. At least that's how our world can conceive of it and our minds about these types of things. But this is what it means that Jesus Christ is King. Philippians 2, again, your mind should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became a servant, took on flesh, became obedient even to death. He's crossed more lines than you'll ever be able to. And then we gather for communion, and thinking about the body being opened and broken, what do you hear? This is my body given for you. I think Lewis was at peace on that asphalt that day because of that. This is my body given for you. You hear the minister or the priest say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Good quote I read this week said, the only body capable of taking us all in. This is the hope of our faith for the world. The only body capable of taking us all in with all of our different body marks is the body of Christ. And we would move towards not our own significance and protection, but that we would move out trusting not in our work, but in God's presence and love. This was a new way forward. It was an extraordinary meeting, but really they had no idea the implications. And I think we've yet to see the implications. May God bless us with hearing what he would say to us today. Let me pray. Father, I have in my mind a, a prayer for the people who take up what they feel is a Christian call to protect the faith. So many of those people, I have known them and love them and 
often the motivation can be to serve you. We pray as we move forward as church and in faith that you would show us a faith that is always compelled towards the other. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given your body for this whole world, even including us. We pray in your name.